Today is part two of the series that we started last week. Um, not series, a study that we studied last week, which was about idolatry. Um, and let's review uh, what idolatry is. I know you, many of you reviewed idolatry in your small groups last Friday. But for those of us who weren't in small group last Friday, it's a good time to just, you know, remember what the definition of idolatry is. Um, one definition of idolatry that we talked about last week is idolatry is worshiping anything other than the true God and in a true way. So genuine worship is not only are we worshiping the one true God, but we are to worship him in the way that he prescribed that he ought to be worshiped, which is in spirit and in truth. So anything that is not worshiping the true God or anything that is not worshiping him in, in, him in the way that he prescribed is idolatry. Another definition of idolatry comes from Romans 1.25, where it says they, they, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship the created things more than the creator. Paul's definition of idolatry in Romans chapter 1 is that rather than worshiping the creator God, men and women, they decide to worship created things rather than the creator. Rather than recognizing that God is the creator, that he is the foundation of all things, and rather than recognizing his, him being the creator and giving do what, what is owe him, which is our worship and loyalty and our love and our trust, human beings dismiss God and worship created things. Created things can be anything. It can be a system of ideas. It can be philosophies. It could be other people. It could be, it could be any man-made things, ideologies, material things, people. Rather than worship, recognizing God to be the creator, we take these created things and we think they are the ultimate things. So what happens when, we, when the creator-creature distinction gets confused? What happens when we turn our back towards the creator and worship creature, created things? Our lives become disjointed, discombobulated, in disarray. We're confused, and we do nonsensical evil things. The root of all human problem is idolatry. When you recognize, when you, we, we sang about holiness of God today, right? When you recognize God's holiness, recognizing God's holiness means he is separate from you. And when you recognize that he is the ultimate reality, and when you start to submit all things under the reality of who he is, what happens to your life? You become, your life starts to become orderly. Your mind, your thinking becomes more clear your relationships start to improve. Because when you recognize God and worship him and give him what he deserves, which is your trust, your loyalty, your, your love, shalom comes, peace comes. The word shalom means like restoration. Things are restored. And it's really true. One thing that my wife doesn't understand about me is... She can't understand my, why I love cheesy Korean dramas. I really love cheesy Korean dramas. I don't care about the whole psychologically complex thing. I, I don't like those. I like the cheesy ones where it's obvious what's going to happen. There's family. There's conflict in the family. There's drama. But at the end, everything gets restored. I love those dramas. Why do I love those dramas? Because I think that's an accurate example of what happens when we recognize God to be the creator and when we start to submit all things under him. It's true. Like, everything becomes orderly. You see things become, you, you start to see things clearly. It, it's amazing. The reason I love prayer, I think I told you this, is because in, in, in my prayer time, I, 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 I look at God. I look at his word and I look at him. And when I start to look at him in my prayer, all the insane thoughts that I had before prayer, it subsides and becomes orderly. It's amazing. But what happens when, we, when our starting point is not recognizing God for who he is? What happens if our starting point is either our desires 
or what we think the world ought to be? What happens if our starting point is us? If our starting point is us, it's disaster, it's chaos. We overvalue things that should not be overvalued. We undervalue things that should be, should be valued. And the thing, and, and that's what Satan knows. Satan knows when we look at God, we have shalom, we have peace. Satan knows when, we, when, when, we, when he gives us a false starting point that our, that our lives become a disaster. And that is why to kill us, to destroy us, Satan throws idols at us. He distracts our minds to pursue after things that are dead. We read in last week Psalm 135. Psalm 145, it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so, so will all who trust in them. Psalmist is saying, people make idols that are not real. They, they are worthless. And anyone who, who pursues after these idols will just be, will be like those idols, worthless and dead. Satan throws dead things at us. We think those dead things, those unreal things are really real. And we spend our entire lives pursuing after those unreal things. And that is why our lives are always hungry and thirsty. And even getting what we ultimately want doesn't really satisfy. I read a couple of studies this week. Not studies. I, I listened to a podcast. Let's, let's be honest. I listened to a podcast. And they said like, the transgender rate in teenage girls is skyrocketing. Right? And I'll tell you what, what the theory says, but you know, later on and privately. But so these, there are a lot of these teenage girls who think like they're, they're misgendered, right? And so they pursue after like therapy, right? So they, they inject hormones in their bodies and all that stuff, thinking that if they think that their bodies are in, in conformity to who they think they are, that they'll be happy. But the study's shown, even after hormone therapy and transitioning, the suicide rate of the same group of women, same group of teenage girls, it doesn't subside. Suicide rate is skyrocketing among teenage girls. And whether you, you, they transition or not, it doesn't curb the hunger and the misery inside of them. Satan is throwing lies at them. Satan is saying, hey, what you need is to be regendered. And if you pursue after regendering, then you will have shalom. But that's not true. What they are pursuing after is not real. It doesn't answer anything. You can say that about fame and money. One of the greatest rock stars in the 1980s, you guys don't know him because you're, you're young, is this guy named John Mellencamp. He was one of the most popular American rock and roll singers in the 1980s. And, what he, and he wrote a biography. In the biography, he says, after getting fame and fortune, he realized there was nothing behind it. After reaching the pinnacle of his career, fame and fortune, he, he opened that door of fame and fortune and realized there's nothing behind it. So, it, like, after, you know, in a, couple, a couple of years later, after his, like, a, like pinnacle of his career, his manage, manager came to him and said, hey, let's do a world tour. If you do a world tour, you can make more money. He says, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay at my home and I'm going to paint. His painting is not that great. But he chooses to stay home and paint and say no to hundreds of millions of dollars because he knew there was nothing behind the hundreds of millions of dollars. The thing that we occupy our minds, the imagination, the thing that we think we need and we want, and if we have it, there's shalom. Chances are they're dead. There's nothing behind them. But our feelings and our thinking don't think that way. 
We think they're so real. If I just get it, if I get the precious, then shalom. Don't be foolish, God says. They're not real. God is who is real. And therefore, Paul says, you must flee from idolatry. Idolatry is so destructive and dangerous, you must flee from it. How do you flee from it? We, 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 we studied a couple of things last week. The first thing that Paul says to do to flee from idolatry is use your senses, use your mind. Specifically in verse, what, 15, he says, I speak as sensible people, judge for yourself what I say. The word sensible here means reason. Think. Think truly about the nature of these idols that you're pursuing. And most importantly, think, Christians, about who you are. Who are we? We are people who are, who are participating in the blood and body of Christ. The word participation that, 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 that Paul talks about here, like I said last week, it, it, it's more, it, it, it means entanglement. It means unity, being united with. It means in deep fellowship with. Paul says, when you partake in the Lord's Supper, when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are participating in, you are being united with, you are fellowshipping, you are entangled with the work of Jesus Christ, with the saving work, with the blood and broken body of Jesus Christ that he shed and he broke for you to save you. How do you flee from idols? Paul says, think with your mind who you are. You are participants. You are entangled with Jesus Christ himself. The identification with Jesus Christ is the way you flee from idolatry. Paul gives an example in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What Paul means is verse 18 is, is to, is, Paul uses verse 18 to strengthen the point that I just made. In the Old Testament, the way the Jewish people worshiped God is they, uh, they lifted sacrifice to the, to, to, to the altar, to the Lord. There was an altar and they burned up sacrifices. Guilt offerings, sin offerings, fellowship offerings, these offerings were lifted up in the altar. They will bring animals and grain, and the priest will light it up, right? And then after the priest lights up and burns up the sacrifices, the, Jew, the, 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 the worshipers will sit, out, sit by the altar, and they will start eating the food that was lifted up to the, at, the, at the altar. And the reason why they are, and, and the reason behind they're eating this food is to symbolize the unity their unity to what, ha what has taken place in the altar. By eating in the altar, they're saying, the food that was, the animal that was lifted up as a sacrifice for my sins, by eating, by partaking in that meal, I, I'm, I'm declaring before the Lord that I am benefiting by the significance of that sacrifice. By lifting up the sin offering before the Lord and by eating the sin offering, I am saying, I am being forgiven because that animal took the place of my sins. And because the animal was lifted up on behalf of my sins, I am, a, I, am, I am one of the people of God. I am one of the chosen people of God. So by eating the food in the altar, they're saying, I am benefiting from the sacrifice that is making that, that was just made. Paul is saying, similarly, when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are saying, I am united, I am entangled with the work of Jesus Christ. And that is primarily, I, and I, I receive benefits of that unity. The benefit of that unity is forgiveness of my sins. The benefit of that unity is resurrection from my sinful state to a righteous state. The benefit of that unity is the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and residing in us. Paul is saying, how do you flee from idolatry? Know your state, know your identity, know who you are in Christ. Now, like I said last week, the great benefit of being a Christian 
is this entangled reality that you live with Christ. This entangled fellowship, it not only happens in the Lord's Supper, it happens in our everyday life. The great benefit of being a Christian is Jesus Christ resides with us in our everyday. And as he resides with us, his residing presence is a power for change. It really is something magnificent. When you reside with Christ, when you fellowship with Christ in your everyday life, he changes your mind and he changes you. There is a powerful change, powerful influence that Christ gives as you fellowship with him. Quiet time is more than just a religious practice. It is a time where you start to study his word, where you fellowship with him. And when you fellowship with him, he changes you. There's a power of change when you fellowship with Christ. I see it in, all, in, in, in this church. People who like, start leading Bible study, when they start to study Bible intently on their own for the sake of leading small group, what they always tell me is their relationship with God deepens as they study the word of God. Because Christ fellowship with these brothers who are preparing for these small groups, it ignites a change in them. When you fellowship with Christ, the Holy Spirit will influence you. He will change you. And that is absolutely true. That's how you flee from idolatry. Know who you are in Christ and be in constant communion with him. Study his word intently. Pray what you studied. I guarantee you, he will influence you and change you. Paul says that's how you flee idolatry. Then Paul talks about participation. If you don't participate with Christ, you are participating in idolatry. And the problem with participating in idolatry is there are demonic forces behind those idols. Paul, Paul in verse 19, goes back to talking about food offered to, idol, to idolatry, to, to, to food, eating food offered up to idols. In chapter 8, it was clear, Paul said, right, idols are not real. Idols are not real. Right there, and food lifted up to those idols are just food. So as long as your conscience is clear, and as long as you don't offend the conscience of a weaker brother, you can eat that food because it's just food, because idols aren't real. Then in chapter 10, Paul talks about fleeing from idolatry. So that could kind of cause confusion in the minds of the Corinthians. He said, whoa, 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 Paul. In chapter 8, you said idols aren't real, you can eat. But in chapter 10, you're telling us to flee from idolatry. What's the deal? Are, are they two different teachings that you're giving, giving us? Paul says no. Verse 19, he says, what, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that idol is anything? Verse 20, no. He said, what I said is still true. Idols aren't real. So those wooden blocks, you know, like they made idols, like physical idols out of wooden blocks. Those idols made out of wooden blocks are not real, right? And the food lifted up to those unreal things, they're just food. He's still being consistent with what he previously taught. But Paul is saying, even though those things are not real, the physical things of food and the idol is not real, what is real is the spiritual forces behind the practice of idolatry. And that spiritual force is behind the practice of idolatry is demonic power. Verse 20, Noah implied that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Once again, the participant here means fellowship, entanglement. So Paul is saying, those foods are not a big deal, but what is a big deal? It's a practice of idolatry. And behind practice of every idolatry is demonic forces. The problem of eating food to idolatry is you may be participating, you may be fellowshipping with demons. Be very clear thinking, my dear friends, 
Nothing is neutral in life. Everything has a power behind it. Everything has a power that tries to influence you. Paul is saying, behind every idol, idolatry, whether it is idolatry lifted up in the temple, or whether it is idolatry in our modern culture, behind every idolatry, behind every false religion, is demonic forces that tries to influence you. Nothing is neutral. Idolatry, like I said, it's not just physical blocks of wood that these Corinthians worshipped. Fortunately, we don't have many of those idols, practice of idolatry in, in modern America. But idols are, are, doesn't have to be physical representations of anything. It can be ideologies, philosophies. I'll give you an example. The three dominant philosophies that, that did mo- that more damage to destroy the people of God and the church are Darwinism, Freudianism, and Marxism. Darwin, Freud, and Marx are three guys who came up with ideologies that people embrace that did more damage to the people of God than any oppressors. What are these theories that these men expound? Freud. Freud is saying, there's no such thing as sin. What there is is psychological trauma. You don't have to explain yourself in terms of good or bad, right and wrong. Those are old categories. What you need to understand, when you, what you need to approach, how you need to approach yourself is through psychological examination of your psyche. Psychological trauma and resolving those trauma is a way to wholeness. You don't need church, you don't need Christ, you just need a good psychotherapist. Isn't that what a lot of modern people think too? Especially in, including Christians? I'm not a sinner. My, my parents just did a bad job on me. I'm not a sinner. I had PTSD. I'm not a sinner. Because, you know, I got bullied when I was a kid. All horrible. What parents damage the parents do. PTSD, bullying, it's all horrible. But they're not the kernel of what is wrong with us. The kernel of what is wrong with us is we turn our back towards the, to God and we embrace idols. That's what's wrong with us. Before you're saying, nope, that's not what's wrong with you. Don't think of yourself in those categories. Darwin. God didn't create anything. There's no God. Everything just happened accidentally, and everything's evolving without God or anything. Everything's just happened accidentally, and everything's just evolving. You don't need God to explain the universe. Richard Dawkins is primarily Christianity's number one enemy right now. And he's the world's one of the most foremost um, Darwinists, evolutionary biologists. And it's funny because he tells his students, right, students, when you look at a cell, you would think that the way way the human cell operates, you would think that it looks like that it's been designed. When you look at a cell, you would think that it's designed because it's so complex and yet so simple. But Dawkins is saying, be careful, students, even though the human cell looks designed, you've got to remind yourself over and over again that it's not designed, it's an accident. Darwin is saying, there's no God. Nothing is created. It's just accidents. Marx. He's, Marx is on the rise right now. Marx is saying there's no individual sin. You've got to think about everything in terms of group sin. There are the oppressors and the oppressed, right? If you're part of the oppressed, you deserve destruction. You've got to destroy the oppressors so that the oppressed can live. That's what the world is. 
Don't think of it as individual categories, individual sins. Marx is saying, just make everyone a part of a group. Whether you are white or black. And if you're white, everything that you do is wrong now. Because of what your ancestors did. Oh, that's on the rise right now. These three theories are orbiting all around what we, li- what we look at, what we listen to, who we talk to. They're orbiting all around. Look, I saw a YouTube clip this, 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 uh, this week. It was about this man. Like He was from poor, he's a white man, from a very poor background. Very impoverished, like, like West Virginia Hill Country impoverished. He worked hard. And he became successful. But what was alarming about him was he felt so guilty about his success. Why? Because he thinks he got his success because of his white privilege. Even though there was nothing privileged about him. He says, oh, I feel so bad because I know it's my whiteness that got me to succeed. I feel so bad for him. Why? Because he's looking at his life not through the lens of truth. What is the lens of truth? That God gave him the gifts. And God allowed him to succeed. That's the truth. But he's not looking at his lens of truth. He's looking at his, his life through the lens of Marxism. Talk to any 20 something college kid in campus, and this is their worldview. And this worldview is invading the church. There are pastors out there, there are church leaders, there are well-renowned church leaders out there that is telling their white congregants that they should be remorseful and repentant of their ancestors' sin. And they should, I, I don't know, I don't know what they want the white people to do, but they should feel guilty about their ancestors' sin. Look, there's racism. Clearly there's racism, right? The human heart is racist, I know. But what is the church leaders doing? They're adapting Marxist theories. Don't look at the black people or white people as individuals, but look at them as a monolith. And if you're white, you should repent. These church leaders do not say they're Marxist, because I don't think they think they're Marxist, but they're certainly adapting the Marxist worldview. Idolatry is everywhere. It's in Netflix. That's why Becky Cook says after watching one hour of Netflix, you should read three hours of Bible because you've just been lied to for an hour. It's in the commercials that you watch. It's in the musics that you listen to. They look shiny, right? The way Satan tries to influence us by idolizing things, he doesn't want to make us idolize ugly things. The thing that he makes us idolize are shiny, and it seems to make sense. The reason Marxism is so popular, because it appeals to the guilt of people. Right? And it just makes sense. If you're, if you, I think people who are Marxist tend to be tender-hearted people. I think, I think that's it. There are no jerks who are Marxist. Maybe Stalin was a jerk. Right? But generally speaking, people who, are like, who embrace the Marxist mentality, they're generally like kind, conscientious type of people. And to them, Marxist theory looks right. The thing, if you idolize material things, those commercials that you watch make what money can do for you, very attractive. Every time I see a Lexus commercial, I want one. Right? These things look very shiny. And it does seem to make sense. And if we're not careful, we're going to embrace it. We're going to let it influence us. Another popular source of idolatry is fear of men, fear of other people. What other people think about you. We order our lives based on how other people think about us. 
It seems to make sense because the people that we fear are right in front of us. But their opinions don't mean, don't mean anything. Be careful what you are to be influenced, Paul says. Because these Corinthian Christians, the problem with these Corinthian Christians, especially those who think they were strong, they thought they could use their Christian liberty to do whatever. Paul says, no, you can't do whatever. You're going to be mindful of the power behind these things that you want to do. When I was young, right, like, which was a long time ago, people would say, like, my pastors would tell me, similar to Pastor Wuji's pastor, right? They, they, they told us, don't listen to secular music. Don't listen to heavy metal. Heavy metal is a de- demon's music, right? So even now, when I look at Metallica, back of my mind, I says devil music, right? And they say, don't listen to it. And maybe that was good advice, but I think a better advice would have been to say, you can listen to it, but think about what that message is saying. What, think about the message behind the song. Think about what the song is trying to tell you. It's not simply just to be far from it. Some, sometimes you, some things you need to be far from it, like pornography and sexual things. You just, mean, you just like get up and like run away from it. But a lot of things in culture, seemingly benign things, Look at what it's telling you. It's trying to influence you. Do you know that? The movies that you watch, always trying to influence you. Paul says, if you let them influence you, you're participating with demons. Verse 21, Paul says, the problem with that is you cannot drink that cup of the Lord and cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's saying, you cannot be under the influence. You cannot be entangled with both Christ and devil at the same time. It doesn't work. We think it's possible. We think that we can be Christian and be influenced by the world too. There's this pastor, like a really well-known pastor. I said, he said, you know, I'm a critical race theorist. Critical race theorist is based on Marxism. And he says, I'm a critical race theorist, and I'm a Christian. He says, I think I can be a Christian and a critical race theorist at the same time. I said, no, that's foolish. You can't. You can't embrace the worldview of Marxism and, 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 wor- and the worldview of Christianity. They're, incom- they're incompatible. But that guy, that pastor who has a PhD in sociology, I think, he thinks he can Paul says, no, you can't. You can't participate under demonic influences and participate with fellowship with Christ. You can't do that. We think it's possible to pursue after the American dream of materialism and money and yet serve the Lord at the same time. You can't. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trying to make money, but you know you cannot have two loyalties. You cannot say money, material things will make me whole and still say Christ makes me whole. You can't say that. You will be influenced by one or the other, not both. That's why Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. You can't. You can't do that. Because your heart is meant to be loyal to one thing. You're either loyal to Christ or you're loyal to demons through idolatry. When you're loyal to Christ, shalom comes, peace comes, restoration comes, fruit comes, life comes. When you're loyal to the idols and the demons behind it, disorder, chaos, dissatisfaction comes. Therefore, fight your idols. You've got to recognize your idols. And you've got to put those idols, you've got to shine those idols in the light of truth, in the light of the gospel, so that you can flee from it. Why am I yelling? I gotta be more calm. Joe agrees. Let's calm down. To fight your enemies, you gotta recognize what your enemies are, right? Idols are very dangerous, and you and therefore you need to we need to wage battles against our enemies. 
but to battle, to wage the battle against our enemies, we got to know what our idols are. And everyone has different idols. What is idolatry to me will be different from you. The demon in our flesh customizes idols to each, each, each one of us according to, each, according to our needs and according to our insane, think, insane thinking. How do you know what your idols are? And that's where Tim Keller comes into play. There's no, I don't think there's anyone who wrote as many about idol, idolatry as Tim Keller. I think Tim Keller built his career in, in idolatry, like, you know, fighting idolatry. So what is idolatry? How do, Tim Keller says, how do you recognize idols? How do you recognize the idols of your heart? He says there are like few questions that you can ask, right? So these are some of the ways that Keller, you know, teaches us how to recognize the idols of our lives. Number one, he says, your idols are, the way you know your idol, what your idols are is, what do you imagine every day? What do you just constantly wish you had? You know what they are. There's a voice in your head that is telling you, you need this. And the way you know that you're telling yourself that you need this is because you're constantly thinking about it. You're organizing your life around it. You're dreaming about it. What is it that you're constantly dreaming about? What do you think your life is about? You say, Jesus, come on. Is it really Jesus? What is it? Keller says, what you often think about, that's, that could be your idol. Number two, what you know your idols is, what do you spend money on? For a lot of us, I guess it would be food because there are a lot of food charges, but significantly, significant purchases. Where do you primarily spend your money on? Your disposable or maybe even your income, not even disposable, but where do you, where do you spend all your money on? That's a good sign of where your idols are. Another question is, a good way to discern idols is, how do you respond to unanswered prayers? When God says no to something, does it make you question his goodness? You can say God is good, God is loving, but if he doesn't give you that, you doubt his goodness. What is it? If he takes away your job, are you going to question his goodness? If he takes away your boyfriend and girlfriend, is he, are you question his goodness? If you take away your ministry, are you going to question his goodness? What is the one thing that you tell God that you cannot have God? I think that's your, that's your idol. The final test. Keller says, to use, look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Just as a fisherman looking for fish knows to go where the water is rolling, look, at, look for your idols at the bottom of painful emotions, especially, that, especially those that never seem to lift and that drive you to things that you, that, that, and drive you to things to do things that you know that are wrong. If you are angry, ask, is there something here too important to me, something I am telling myself that I have that, that I have to have at all cost. Do the same thing. Do, do the same thing about strong, strong fear or despair or guilt. Ask yourself: Am I so scared because something is being threatened, which I think is a which I think is necessary, which I think is, is a necessity when it's actually not. Look at your strong emotion. Look at the strong anger and pain behind your life. We're in pain because we're either afraid of losing it or afraid of not getting it or afraid that we're never going to have it. Whether it is marriage, whether it is a job, whether it is anything, there is something underneath your strong emotions that reveals your idols. Examine these things. 
These are your enemies. These are your God's substitutes. These are throwing your life in disarray and preventing you from experiencing the restoring work of God in your life. Fight idolatry. Because you cannot be influenced by, by the demons behind the idols and God at the same time. You cannot. Paul warns in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul says, if you remain in idolatry, if you participate in the union with demons, you're going to arouse God's jealousy. God's jealousy it's not a jealous, it's not, it's not fallen in human jealousy. I think human beings become jealous because we're, we're irrational and insecure. God's jealousy is not irrational. God's jealousy is not insecure. God's jealousy is based on his pure love for his people. When you deeply love something, you cannot stand a divided loyalty. A husband must be jealous over the love of his wife. A husband should not be willing to share the love of his wife with another person, with another human being, and wife vice versa. If you genuinely, deeply love someone, you will be jealous for the love of that person. Parents, you, will, you need to be jealous of your parental love for your children. You cannot share your parental love with any other person. There's only one mother, one father that child has, and that is you. And no one can be that substitute. When, you're, when, when you have a pure love for your child, you will be jealous for the love of that child. The deeper you love something, the more you are jealous for that person. Because he loves you, because he loves you, he is jealous. God's jealousy is based on not only his pure love for you, but his anger and sadness of what, idol, what idols can do. Idolatry destroys the world. Why did millions and millions of people have to die in Soviet Union? Because Stalin idolized the ideology of communism and socialism. Why did millions and millions of people have to die during World War II? Hitler had an ideology that he saw the world through. And he, re he wanted to idolize, realize that ideology. Ideologies, idols destroy humanity. The idols that, pursue, that you pursue, that I pursue, causes destruction. That arouses God's jealousy. Paul says, are we stronger than he? What he is implying when he asks that question, are we stronger than he? He is asking, do you want to be God's enemy? He's saying, you're not stronger than God. And if you are continually engaging in the practice of idolatry, you, will become, you are his enemy. There's only two loyalties in the universe. Either it is with God or it is with something else. It is with the devil. There's only two loyalties. And if you keep on living a life of idolatry, you are God's enemy. And if you're not careful, he will destroy all the idols of the world, and all the worshipers who worship those idols. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world, because when the world perishes, if you love the world, you will perish with it. The idols of your life are not innocent things. They're deadly things. They arouse God's jealousy. And if you are continually being influenced by those idols, if you're not repentant, he will destroy you. And me. That's why the people that God loves 
the way you know that God loves you is he destroys the idols of your heart. He really does. Before the idols destroy us, God destroys the idols. And he destroys the idols by taking away things that we thought that we cannot live without. It's true. God's discipline is painful because he takes away things that we think that we cannot live without. One of the greatest jumping moments of my faith is unemployment. I used to have a nice, cushy job at Tyson's. Right? There was a, there's a big firm at Tyson's, and I had a corner office. I didn't have a corner office, but I had a really good office right? with a view right? um, that some people pay $3,000 a month for to get that view, but I had it for free because I was a lawyer of that firm. Oh, I love being a lawyer of that firm. And I was so afraid of losing my job at the firm that any mistake that I've made, I had a heart attack. I love that firm, and I love what that firm said about me. What, you know what God did? He took it away. He smashed it before my eyes. It was hurtful. It was painful. Looking back, I needed it to set me free so I can look at him more clearly. It is a confession of my mother. All, I have, uh, there's three of us. I have two, bro- two brothers. And all of us have some form of ailment. And my mom didn't understand. Because my mom was a, is a prayer warrior. My mom is an evangelism queen. And my mom didn't understand why all her three children had to suffer some form of ailment. And now she says, I realized I needed that. I needed God to strike you guys. Because I was idolizing you guys. That's what she said. My father's idol was his career. God smashed his career right in front of his eyes so that he will see God. He does that to people that he loves. The people that he doesn't love, he lets them pursue dead things, dead idolistic, dead things, and make their lives in disarray. But if he loves you, he knows. You cannot hide what you think that you cannot live without besides him. And if he loves you, he will touch it, and he will smash it. So that you can see him so that you can be restored, so that you can say, how marvelous is his love for me. That's what he does. Are you going through pain right now, trials right now? Maybe it is painful because he's taking away your idols. Maybe you are too busy pursuing these things, thinking about these things, imagining these things to look at him. And because you don't look at him, your life is in disarray and in misery. To set you free, he's touching those idols. Let him destroy it. Let him renew your fellowship with Jesus Christ so that you can bask in the light of his glory. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we're not experiencing your restoration. We're not familiar with shalom. We're not familiar with life-bearing fruit. Because, Lord, our minds are preoccupied and are influenced by the idols of culture, 
Underneath all idols of culture lies the devil, lies a spiritual power that wants to destroy us. Our mistake, our dangerous mistake, is thinking that these influential things in culture are benign, are not, are harmless. And because of our misunderstanding of these forces, we let them influence us. Whether we admit it or not, we define our lives, ourselves, other people, primarily through the categories of idolatry rather than the categories of truth. And because we are doing so, Lord, we are arousing your jealousy. We are living a life of misery and confusion. What we need is to see you as the creator and worship you accordingly. What we need is a heart transplant. What we need is a renewal of our minds. What we need is a saving work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Father, do not make us stay in our foolish, idolatrous state. Rescue us from idolatry. If it, that involves smashing things before our eyes, smashing our idols before our eyes, may you do so, Lord. Smash them so that we will be set free from them so that we can see you more clearly. Father, many of us are still at our homes. Many of us are um, thinking, because we're at home, we, many of us think that we can hide from you and the world. We can't. The world comes in through Netflix. The world comes in through YouTube. The world comes in through the music that we listen to. Rather than letting these influences in, we pray that may your truth come in so that we will be set free. We pray that you provide for us who are in need. For those of us who, are, who need jobs, provide employment. For those of us, Father, who need physical healing, Bring healing to, to our friends, to ourselves, and to our friends and family. But most importantly, grant us sanity of vision so that we will not look at things through our insane lenses, but through the lens of righteousness and truth. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.